0: Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to be along for some more half-assed history. This week on The Eugenic, we're having a chat about the Anarchy at Samara. This was a period during the 860s that saw the Abbasid Caliphate, perhaps the most developed and advanced realm on earth at the time, descend into utter chaos. Because between 861 and 870, five caliphs, a caliph being the leader of a caliphate, five caliphs were killed. You need a bloody revolving door for these poor bastards. Talk about, talk about staff turnover. You know, as you can imagine, um, having your caliph knocked off every couple of years wasn't, wasn't very good for the old political stability, especially when these deaths were usually accompanied by factional infighting, political disunity and even civil war in some cases. So it won't come as a surprise to learn that this episode is going to feature a plenty of blood and guts. No shortage of uh, of horrible murder this time around, but... The reason that we're talking about the anarchy at Samara this week is because, as I'm sure any video game nerds that are listening know, Assassin's Creed Mirage is about to be released. Um, and I have just realised that I'm about to plug this game for free. Bloody hell! I should be I should be invoicing Ubisoft for this, shouldn't I? But you know, whatever. Um, I'm generally generally a big fan of the Assassin's Creed video game franchise, even if they are a little bit. Uh, Lucy goosey with history It it is historical fiction after all and look in any case it's good fun to hang out muck around with Leonardo da Vinci and, and Cleopatra and Herodotus while playing these games episodes 204 190 and uh, oh we actually haven't done an episode in Herodotus yet have we no we'll just, I'll get around to it eventually anyway so New Assassin's Creed game comes out this week. It is set, right, during the anarchy at Smara. I'm I'm looking forward to giving it a crack. I loved the original game back in 2007. I thought it was great that it explored a period and a place in history that we that we don't often see from a from a non-Eurocentric viewpoint. So I'm glad the franchise is getting back to its roots with Mirage heading back to the Middle East. Um, yeah, so, looking forward to playing it. Um, and, and while reading about the game, I saw that it's set during the Anarchy at Samara, uh, and so I started to read about the Anarchy to better understand the background of the of the historical fiction within Mirage, that I'll, you know, for when I play through it. And then I thought, well, look, I may as well share with the class. Maybe there are some Assassin's Creed fans that will be booting up the game this week and, and might enjoy a bit of extra context as they get stuck in and, you know, cut about Baghdad fighting the Templars as Bazim ibn Ishaq. And uh, look, if all of that sounds like double Dutch to you and you've got no idea what I'm talking about, if you've never played an Assassin's Creed game. Well, don't worry, because you can just sit back and enjoy the the, the blood and the guts and the horrible murder that I promise you. Don't even worry about it. Anyway, a lot to get across this week, as ever, so let's get underway. Let's get stuck into the anarchy at Samara. Talk about one of the most disruptive and destructive periods in the history of the Islamic world. Off we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back. To the year 632 ce over 200 years before the actual anarchy and we're doing this to have a chat about not just the abbasid caliphate and how it was founded but caliphates more broadly what was a caliphate caliphate uh, caliphate was a uh, a theocratic slash monarchical form of government ruled by a caliph as i mentioned before someone said to be a successor to the islamic prophet muhammad Caliphates were both religious and political in nature. The caliph exercised both religious and political power um, because in in very broad terms, caliphs were considered to be the leaders of the entire Muslim world. And as a result of that, the four major caliphates uh, that, that, that we saw throughout history, they were all empires. They ruled vast expanses of territory based in or around the Middle East, but ultimately expanding out out all the way east to Central Asia and all the way west out to the Atlantic Ocean. The first, the Rashidun Caliphate, it was established in 632, uh, the year I mentioned just before. And it had its, its capital first in Medina, in today's Saudi Arabia, before moving to Kufa, in today's Iraq. And at its greatest extent, the Rashidun Caliphate uh, ruled an area stretching from Tunisia to Pakistan in today's terms. So it was very, very big. But despite its successful uh, successful expansion, the Rashidun Caliphate was plagued with internal division and civil strife, especially with the conflict uh, between Sunni and Shia Muslims, uh, a little like the whole Protestant Catholic thing that would tear Christendom apart in later centuries. We talked about that a fair bit on the, on, on the podcast. And eventually the whole thing just came apart. Uh, the the Rashidun Caliphate collapsed after a whole heap of leaders were assassinated. It was an absolute bloodbath, let me tell you. People got all arced up eventually. A bloke named Muawiyah, he seized power and he established the second caliphate. The second caliphate was known as the Umayyad Caliphate. It was uh, centred first in Damascus in Syria before moving its capital to, uh, to Harran in what is today southeastern Turkey. Now, the Umayyad Caliphate didn't even last a century, but what a century it was. Umayyad rule extended all the way from Pakistan to Morocco and then up into the Iberian Peninsula, modern-day Spain and Portugal. However... In 747, the Abbasid Revolution began, or as it's sometimes known, check this out, the Movement of the Men of the Black Raiment. How's that for a bloody revolution name? The Abbasids must have had a terrific PR and branding department, I'll tell you what. Anyway, this revolution came about due to the fact that the uh, the Arab Umayyads tended to treat non-Arabs as second-class citizens, regardless of whether they were Muslim or not, and uh the Abbasids, on the other hand, they were in favour of setting up a multi-ethnic, religiously tolerant political administration. And given the size and the diversity of the Umayyad Caliphate, they did not have trouble finding supporters for this idea. After three years of conflict, the Abbasid revolution was, uh, was very successful. And so, as I mentioned, uh, the year 750 was when the Abbasid Caliphate was established. Now it lasted. Uh, it lasted a very long time, much longer than the uh, the, the first two. It lasted almost eight hundred years, with a with a brief break in the mid thirteenth century, when of course the Mongols turned up and wrought havoc for a while there. Um, and throughout the the history of the Abbasid Caliphate, its capital uh, moved all over the place. To be honest, uh, Kufa, Anbar, Raqqa, Merv, Cairo, eventually, um, and of course Samarra, uh, where our story today takes place. But more notably than any of these locations was, of course, Baghdad, which was the Abbasid capital for much of its history. Under the Abbasids, Baghdad became one of the most important scientific and cultural cities on the face of the earth. The famous House of Wisdom could be found there, a centre of learning and education and invention and innovation. Between the Abbasid's fame for scientific research and advancement, uh, incredible cultural and artistic works, and its multi-ethnic and multi-religious society, the Abbasid Caliphate was, we can safely say, one of the most advanced and highly developed civilizations anywhere on the planet at the time. The Golden Age of Islam, generally considered to have stretched from the 8th to the 13th century, saw great advancements in science philosophy mathematics medicine culture and learning in fact the only reason that we have access to as many classical texts as we do from the world of ancient greece is because they were translated into arabic during this period and therefore survived so much of the sum of human knowledge was either generated or preserved by the golden age of islam today we we owe a lot to the, uh, the Islamic scholars that uh, advanced human knowledge so very much during this period. So, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the Abbasid Caliphate really was at the absolute forefront of human advancement during this golden age, but then, of course, the Mongols turned up in 1258, they burnt Baghdad to the ground and ruined everything for everyone. Thanks very much, Hulagu Khan. The Abbasids did survive, but as a shadow of their former selves, and eventually the rise of the Ottomans in the the 15th and 16th centuries saw the fourth and final major caliphate emerge, the Ottoman Caliphate, which is generally just parceled into the Ottoman Empire, uh, and also which was finally formally abolished in 1924. So that is a brief history of the major caliphates and hopefully gives you a better understanding of the sorts of governments that have ruled the Islamic world throughout much of its history. But now... It's time for us to zoom in to one particular point in Islamic history to talk about the anarchy at Samara. So we go all the way back here, we go all the way back to the year 861 to begin our tower properly. We've got five caliphs to get through in under a decade here, so we better get a bloody move on. So 861, a bloke named al Mutawakkil is in charge of the Abbasid Caliphate, and he is ruling at a point that the Abbasid Caliphate is truly great. It, it is all of those things that I was talking about, at, as I said, at the forefront of, of human achievement. But... As for al mutawakkil himself, he was a harsh ruler. He went after non-Muslims and Islamic dissidents uh, with a fair bit of vigour, and he mercilessly crushed revolts and rebellions. But uh, on the other side of the coin, he also got a fair bit of stuff done. He instituted social and economic reforms that benefited the caliphate, uh, built all sorts of stuff, including the Great Mosque of Samarra, which at the time was the biggest mosque in the world. So long story short, in the time leading up to 861, the beginning of the anarchy, the Abbasid caliphate, it's kicking goals with both feet. Things are going very, very well indeed. However, trouble is on the horizon. Now, there are a ton of different factors that contributed to the anarchy, and it's not, it's not as though all of a sudden internal divisions sprung out of nowhere, fracturing the caliphate as it was thrown into turmoil. No, For instance, in 836, the capital was moved from Baghdad to Samarra, which rubbed many people the wrong way. Many people also didn't like the, uh, the Caliphal army, the Mamluks, composed principally of slaves and foreigners and loyal only to the Caliph. And there were also many emerging militaristic factions that, uh, that weren't part of the traditional uh, power structure of the Caliphate. Uh, most notably for our story today, there was a Turkic faction of people who had managed to pull together a fair bit of military power and were able to throw a lot of weight around politically uh, as well. As you will discover in no uncertain terms as this story begins to unfold. However, what really set a match to the tinder, the, the thing that really kicked off the anarchy, um, was the first of many assassinations that we'll be talking about today, the assassination of the caliph al-Mutawakkil in 861. Al-Mutawakkil's first-born son, Al-Muntasir, he was beginning to be sidelined by his old man, who, uh, after initially having named Al-Muntasir as his heir, began to develop a bit of a preference for son number two, Al-Mutaz. And uh, as any eldest siblings that are listening can attest to, it is a bloody bugger of a thing to be overlooked uh, in favour of a younger sibling. You know, I was here first after all. Why has this bloody jumped up Johnny come lately getting all the attention? It's not fair, mate. But that's what was happening. al uh, Al Mudawakel's stringent religious policies had put a lot of people offside. And when he also managed to piss off his eldest son by starting to favour his second son, starting to potentially uh, think about naming him as, as the heir instead, things finally came gutza. Al-Mutasir suffered a series of indignities, uh, having al Mutaz picked to lead prayer after Ramadan, for instance, or having al Mutawakil refuse to let al-Mutasir represent him at religious services. And then, to make matters worse, apparently al Mutawakil's secretary, al-Fath, uh, slapped al-Mutasir across the face when he was whinging about his dad. And that was that. Remember that, uh, that Turkic faction that I mentioned before, right? Well, these blokes, they weren't happy with al-Mudawakal, and uh, they had actually begun to foster a plan to assassinate the caliph. And when uh, al Mutasir was put so far offside by his old man, he actually joined this Turkic faction as a, as, as a co-conspirator. And so with the aid of uh, such a powerful figure, someone who was so close to the caliph, right, his firstborn son, these disgruntled Turks were able to put an assassination plot into action. Not a particularly clever or refined one, but hey, whatever works. At midnight on the 11th of December 861, a group of them infiltrated the caliphal palace. They broke into the room where al mutawakkil and al his secretary were having a late night supper together and just bloody murdered the pair of them just like that. Simple as anything. Uh, Al-Mutasir, who hadn't yet been officially passed over as al Mutawakkil's heir, even though that was coming on the wind, he immediately took power for himself, spreading a story that Al-Fath had murdered his father and then been killed for it. But no one seemed to believe that. So instead, Al-Mutasir just said, uh, yeah, he um, he choked on his drink or something. I don't know, mate, whatever. But look, with his powerful Turkic backers, Almodusir was able to take power and, and sideline his brothers almost without challenge, really. He, he forced his brothers to sign statements of abdication, uh, relinquishing their claims to the throne. And then strengthened his position as caliph by putting friends and political allies in positions of high power, richly rewarding those uh, who had helped to knock off his old man. So this, uh, this militaristic faction of, of disgruntled Turks did very, very well for themselves out of, this, uh, out of this assassination they put together. Anyway, the young caliph, he immediately got stuck into his reign, quickly pushing through religious reforms that promoted uh, tolerance of Shia Muslims. And uh, he also organized an invasion of the Byzantine Empire. But then, in what is very poor pacing by the writing team on this one, Al died. Less than six months after taking power, he died in uh, what could be, potentially, suspicious circumstances. I really wasn't able to figure this one out. There were some sources that indicated that there was nothing strange or mysterious about his death. He just died, you know, as 24-year-olds do, apparently. They they just keel over and die for no reason at all a lot of stuff that i read remained silent on the on the why or the how but there were other sources that seemed a little a little bit more convincing to me that that indicated that he was poisoned um and 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 look to be honest even if he weren't specifically poisoned um my money is definitely on him being assassinated somehow he had pissed off far too many people by Helping to murder his own father, and then also with his aggressive, radical policies that he, he immediately got underway with, even in, in his short reign. In any case, whatever he's dead, right? Almordeci is dead. Um, he dies on the seventh of June, eight sixty two, and now we need a successor. Who's going to succeed him? Not his brothers; they had been removed from the from the line of succession uh, when uh, when Almordeci came to power and had been greatly politically weakened by the uh, by the death of their old man at the hands of the Turks. And in fact, it was actually this Turkic faction that ended up becoming kingmakers after al-Muntasir died. Um, the Turks, they were, they were very strong militarily. And uh, generally speaking, being in charge of a lot of people all holding dangerously sharp objects is a pretty good way to get the things that you want. So the Turks, they get together and they decide that what they want uh, is that, you know, rather than one of al-Muntasir's brothers succeeding him, it would instead be his cousin, a bloke named al-Mustayn. And let me tell you, this decision sent the turds straight into the air conditioning because across the caliphate, chaos ensued immediately. In Baghdad, uh, Arab leaders revolted, they rioted in the streets, they uh, they broke open prisons, they looted and plundered buildings, they vandalised and damaged government, uh, government structures. Uh, And in Samara, meanwhile, uh, riots also erupted as people took to the streets to demonstrate their support for al mutaz the the overlooked brother who had, uh, as I say, been removed from the line of succession. Now, the Turks also took to the streets with their vast military power to put down the riots, and things got got very, very ugly. I can tell you the streets of Samara were awash with blood during this period. Uh, The Turks also took the precaution of... uh, throwing al-Mutaz in prison, along with another spurned brother of al Mutasir, al-Mu'ayyad. Uh, uh, keep him nice and safe uh, in prison there. Who knows? Maybe, maybe they'll be useful to hold on to down the track. Anyway, al Musta'in, he's, he's the caliph now. He rules for four years, from 862 to 866, um, except he doesn't. Not really. It's this Turkic military faction that's really in charge, making the, decision call, making the decisions, calling the shots. Um, they're going ahead with the invasion of the Byzantine Empire, for instance, which is going uh, very badly indeed. And this doesn't do the Turks any favours. They're already deeply unpopular in places like Baghdad, People, amongst people who had supported uh, the, the the family of, uh, of al-Mutawakil and, and the rightful succession of his sons as, as, as his heirs. And um, so as a result of this, there are riots and revolts and, and rebellions that are going on against the reign of al-Mustayin as... as I don't want to say he was like a puppet of the Turks, but he it, it wasn't, it wasn't that far off, to be honest. Anyway, Al Mustaine and his Turkey gallows, they did, a, they did a reasonable job in keeping a lid on it all. But, but here's the important thing, right? Over this period, these, these years that Al Mustaine was, uh, was in power, this political strife, it's taking its toll. It's not, it's not like the Abbasid Caliphate is, is falling apart at the seams or anything like that, but it is slowly but steadily becoming increasingly politically, politically destabilised. It is becoming weakened as this internal conflict continues. Anyway, Al-Mustayn and the Turks, they get through a few years of that becoming, uh, becoming unseated. But then, in 865, things go from bad to a lot bloody worse. The Caliphate isn't able to pay its soldiers. And so now new riots break out, and this time it's not, it's not the people of uh, Baghdad, it's not the people of Samarra who are rioting. It is the Turkic soldiers themselves. They are the ones doing the rioting rather than, rather than stopping it. Uh, al uh, concerned for his safety, and so he flees Samara for Baghdad, which the Turks don't like at all. It's harder to keep an eye on their caliph and make sure he does what he's told when he's in a city that is so hostile to Turkic authority, so the Turks they send messengers down south to Baghdad and they ask him very nicely, please will you come back to Samara? Thank you very much, mate. However, Al-Mustain respectfully invites them to blow it out their respective asses because he's staying in Baghdad. He's not coming back to Samara when there are Turks riding in the streets. Now, Al-Mustain's rudeness to the Turks costs him a very dearly. Because they responded to uh, to his refusal to return to Samara by mobilising these rioting troops, telling them that al Musta'in was the reason that they weren't getting paid, and all of a sudden, a huge number of pissed-off, unpaid Turkic soldiers are raring for a scrap. Remember how the Turks kept the younger brother al mutaz imprisoned in case a time came when he would be useful? Well, it turned out that that time was right now, because the Turks not only released him from prison, but actually announced that he was the true caliph after all, not the bloke that they'd been, you know, working hand in glove with for the past few years. Sorry, everyone, we we really buggered it up with, uh, with al Mustain. We, we shouldn't have put him on the throne, but we, we're sure now, we, we're certain that this new bloke, al he's he's the real caliph, not the other bloke who we're, you know, scapegoating all of our problems onto to get ourselves out of this jam. al Mustain, however, he, he's sitting pretty, right? He's back in uh, in Baghdad, right? He's now has the full support of everyone in Baghdad um, because everyone there wants to undermine the authority of the Turks. It's it's a funny old thing because they were all rioting against him a couple of years ago in Baghdad, but now that he's also an enemy of the Turks, now they're getting behind going, yeah, good on you, mate. They, you know, they're, they're offering him the, their full support. I guess it's, you know, it's a, it's a sort of a everyone hates Collingwood type situation. That's, that's my suspicion. The people of Baghdad just want to see the Turks go down. They don't care who they have to jump into bed in order to, uh, bed with in order to get that done. Um, but look, uh, getting that done is, is going to be a tough bloody ask because the Turkic army, it is enormous, it is very cranky and it marches quick smart down to Baghdad to lay siege to the city. Begun, the Abbasid civil war has, and while there was fighting here and there outside of Baghdad, the the former Abbasid capital really was the focal point of this particular conflict. The siege dragged on and on and on and it bloody well worked, let me tell you. Slowly but surely Baghdad ran out of food and al Musta'in must have started having a bit of deja vu as once again people in Baghdad started rioting against him. The poor bloke can't bloody win. Even the governor of the city, Muhammad ibn Abdullah ibn Tahir, he went behind his back to negotiate a surrender with al Mutaz and the Turks because he realises that as long as this besieging army is sitting outside the walls of Baghdad, they've got Buckley's chance of actually winning the war. But look, In fairness to old mate Muhammad, he manages to snag a pretty good deal for al-Musta'in with hungry rioters in the streets, with uh, even the soldiers defending Baghdad on the brink of mutiny. Muhammad manages to secure a surrender agreement that, as I say, was pretty generous for al-Musta'in. There was no hope that he could win the civil war. al Mu'taz and his Turkic backers were far too powerful. And besides, all the support that al Mustain had initially enjoyed in Baghdad, that had completely evaporated as the siege had progressed. So, after about a year of, uh, of, of Baghdad being besieged in this way... Um, al mustain was convinced to surrender by uh, by Muhammad. He was convinced to surrender both the war and his throne. But again, the terms of this surrender, they weren't too bad at all. al mustain was to be given a larger state in the Hijaz, uh, in today's Saudi Arabia. He was going to be given a sizable pension as well, and would be allowed to travel freely to holy cities like Medina and Mecca as he pleased. So not such a bad deal, considering that he is going to be, be a deposed caliph, you'd expect them to just... I don't know. Kill the bloke and be done with it. Get him out of the way. Make sure he doesn't come back out of the wood. Oh, hang on one second. Just let me double check here. Oh, no, sorry. Yeah, no, they, 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 exactly, that's exactly what they did do. Yeah, no, turns out, turns out they, 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 they did just kill him. How's that for a twist ending? They promised poor old Al Mustaine a happy ending, right? He gets his, he gets his villa, he gets his pension, he can go on his Hajj to Mecca, he can have a great time. Um, but then once he had agreed to to abdicating, once he had surrendered and, and, and given up his throne, They just locked the poor bastard up. He was in prison in Baghdad once al-Mutaz took power and then was put to death. Um, Apparently, the executioner, once he had killed uh, al Musta'in, brought his head into uh, al-Mutaz, the the new caliph, to show him that the deed was done. But at the time, the story goes, al-Mutaz was in the middle of a game of chess. So when this bloke comes in with al Musta'in's head, al-Mutaz is said to have responded by saying, Lay it aside until I finish the game. Absolutely ice cold, I tell you what. In any case, it's A66, Al Mutaz has won the war, and so he is now uncontested as the Abbasid Caliph, uh, even after being forced to sign away his claim to the Caliphate all those years ago by his brother Al But let me tell you this peace did not return to the galaxy. Here's the thing, the Civil War did absolutely nothing to fix the underlying problems that the Abbasid Caliphate was facing. In fact, all this war did was make them worse. The government still couldn't afford to pay its soldiers. They couldn't afford to do this before the war, and they definitely couldn't afford to do it afterwards because of the devastation wrought by all the fighting. Baghdad was half-ruined, the farmland and the towns all around it had been razed and pillaged, canals had been destroyed, thousands and thousands of people had died. Starvation was rampant, bandits were going around looting, the government couldn't do anything to bring the realm back under control. al did what he could to try to stabilise his newly seized caliphate and he attempted to wrest political control and influence back away from the Turks – he had a few Turkic leaders assassinated, and then, just for good measure, also assassinated his own brother Al Muayyad, uh, just just to make sure things better safe than sorry. Uh, but all his attempts to consolidate power were were undone by one simple fact: he just couldn't afford to pay his soldiers. Now, I certainly hope that none of you listeners uh, have grand ambitions for worldwide military dominance, but in case you do, I will uh, I will offer you a piece of advice here that I've learned from history. Make sure there's room in the budget to pay your bloody troops, mate, because these are professionals in the business of killing. They are not the sort of people you want pissed off with you. Almataz didn't even make it three years. His entire reign was plagued with infighting, factionalism, instability, mutinies, rebellions, banditry, and overall... Just a huge loss of influence, prestige, and power for the Abbasid Caliphate. There were uprisings at the the, uh, fringes of the Caliphate. It saw regions like Egypt or lands to the south of the Caspian Sea begin to break away from the Abbasids. And even deep within Abbasid-controlled areas, rebellions and revolts were extremely commonplace poor old al-Mutaz he's he's, he's tap dancing on quicksand here he's trying to keep his realm and his reign together and and to be honest he's running out of people to execute in order to do so eventually in 869 Turkic troops staged a coup they stormed the califal palace they imprisoned al-Mutaz they declared his time as caliph to be officially over and then beat the poor bloke half to death before then beating him the other half of the way as well it turns out that they weren't too happy about him you know executing half their leaders over the last little while. And so that's the end of al-Mu'taz, dead once again at the hands of, uh, of this very powerful faction of militaristic Turks. So who's left to take over? Becoming caliph might sound like a great career move, but uh, with four of them having died in the space of eight years, it didn't seem to be a, bit, it didn't seem to be a good choice for anyone hoping for a steady long term job and a quiet retirement down the track. In any case, the, the, the Turks found someone, another cousin of Al-Mutaz, a fellow named Al-Mutadi, who was uh, hmm, how do how do we put it, brave and or foolish enough to take on the job. But look, I, I, I will say this, Al-Mutadi, he put in a shift. He really did do his very bloody best to turn things around, using uh, using the greatest teacher of all to guide his decisions: history. He attempted to model his rule on the great caliph Umar ibn Abd al-Aziz, the 8th caliph of the Umayyad caliphate, widely considered to be one of the better ones. Uh, Umar II certainly was a very clever bloke, I'll say that, because his, his historical legacy somehow tells us that he was both a pacifist and a conqueror which is quite the needle to thread. Anyway, as I say, old mate uh, Umar, he was, uh, he was a great leader. He was wise, cautious, pious, humble. He lived a life of austerity and dignity uh, and uh, was generally thought of by Muslims as the model Islamic leader. So Al-Mutadi does his best to emulate Umar. He did things like making a point of personally hearing grievances brought to him by his people, uh, demonstrating how in touch he was with them. He regularly fasted to demonstrate his humility and his restraint. And he also removed all musical instruments from his court, which demonstrated, I don't know, that he didn't like a bit of a bit of a sing and a dance. No idea what's going on there. Anyway, Amutadi, he did everything he could to project strength and stability. He pushed back against Turkic influence. He attempted to restore prestige and serenity to the office of caliph. But... He made exactly the same mistake that so many of his forebears did. He pissed off the wrong people and he underestimated the power of angry men with sharp objects. After variously executing, exiling, or excitedly punishing anyone who attempted to undermine his power, Al Mutadi went the same way as many of the other caliphs we've talked about today in that he was murdered by the Turks. The Turks, who still commanded vast armies, weren't about to be shoved out of power by the upstart that they'd put on the throne in the first place. Well, no, in the, what, fourth or fifth place now we're up to. Um, And uh, when one of them, Musa ibn Bukhar, left to campaign against some rebels, Almatati moved to discredit him and turn popular opinion against him as he continued to try to take away more power from this uh, from this faction. But this proved to be a bad move because Musa called off the campaign against the rebels when he found out that al Mutadi had executed his brother, uh, turned right around, stormed the palace, I'm surprised there was much left of it by now, and murdered al Mutadi on the 21st of June 870. So, let's recap for a second here. Since 861, we've had no fewer than five caliphs meet sticky ends, Al-Mutawakil killed on the orders of his son al Mutasir, who himself died in mysterious circumstances not long after, and was then succeeded by his cousin al Musta'in, who then lost a war to and was killed by Al-Mutaz, his cousin and the brother of al Musta'in, and then Al-Mutaz was murdered by the same people who put him in power, the exact same fate met by Al-Mutadi. Never mind bloody underwater welders or those blokes that you see pictures of building the Empire State Building having having their lunch on girders with no safety equipment. Being a caliph in the 860s has to be one of the most dangerous jobs you will ever come across with a 100% fatality rate. So, with that in mind, who is going to take the job this time? Well, as it turns out... Not all the sons of al-Mu'tawakil had been assassinated or murdered. There are a couple left, and it was one of them, al-Mu'tamid, who was next appointed to take the top job, although, it won't surprise you to learn, he held very little in the way of real power. No, the true power behind the throne was another brother of his, al Muwaffaq, who enjoyed the loyalty of enormous military forces, And as we have very firmly established throughout this episode, that is a very good thing to have when you're looking to get your way. In any case, al-Muthamid actually stuck around uh, for a long time. This time they found a caliph who wasn't dead within a few months or years. He was caliph over 20 years, which was enough to bring the anarchy of Samarra to an end. Although it did not restore the Abbasid caliphate to its former glory. In fact, quite the opposite. Al-Mu'tabit ruled in name while al mawafaq ruled in practice. But here's the thing. Whoever was in charge, they weren't in charge of much. The Abbasid Caliphate was, by now, well and truly falling apart. Direct Abbasid control only really extended to the areas around Baghdad, modern-day Iraq, and, and the Hijaz, the area on the west coast of today's Saudi Arabia, around Mecca and Medina. Everywhere else that had been under the, 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 the authority of the Abbasid Caliphate. Everywhere everywhere else, areas were either in open rebellion or had just quietly established their own autonomy. And this only got worse, not better, in the years following the anarchy. The damage had been done, the political strife and instability had taken its toll, and the authority of the caliphate was enormously weakened. It fractured. Regional leaders filled the power vacuum left behind after years and years of infighting at the highest level. The Egyptians broke away, the Persians broke away, the Byzantines sent incursions further than ever into Abbasid lands, and into the 10th century the Abbasids would, lo- would lose great, vast swaths of territory in areas such as North Africa where the Fatimid dynasty emerged. Additionally, internally, a major slave revolt known as the Zanj Rebellion broke out immediately after the anarchy at Samara, resulting in the deaths of tens of thousands more before the Abbasids finally crushed the rebelling slaves. And even those areas that peacefully stayed under nominal Abbasid authority enjoyed so much autonomy that they may as well have been independent at this stage. In fact, it wasn't for centuries and centuries, until things started to turn around and the Abbasids managed to assert and and project their their political power once again. But then along came the Mongols in the 13th century, and as I said before, that was that. So, for a realm that represented the pinnacle of human advancement and achievement, a centre of science and learning and art and culture, The Abbasid Caliphate absolutely caked the bed with the anarchy at Samarra. This short period in the Caliphate's history wrought so much damage and destruction to the power and to the prestige of this realm, in addition to, of course, the the real cost of the human lives that were lost during it. The consequences of the anarchy are numerous, they are far reaching rise of regional powers, huge social and economic disruption throughout the caliphate, widespread rebellions and revolts, and of course, the intensification of conflict between Shiites and Sunnis, conflict that exists to this very day. The Islamic world was, for better or worse, completely reshaped by the anarchy at Samarra and the devastation that it caused. All because people couldn't just calm down and settle on a caliph who was gonna stick around for long enough to make sure everything didn't go to pot. Bloody hell. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the anarchy at Samara. So if you're about to head out and pick up your copy of Assassin's Creed Mirage this week, I certainly hope that uh, this episode has given you a bit more background on uh, on the historical fiction that you're about to, uh, well, hopefully enjoy. Let's hope we don't have another Assassin's Creed Unity situation on our hands, uh, shall we? Uh, anyway, uh, I do hope you enjoy playing the game. I do hope you enjoyed uh, listening to this episode. And if you're not about to uh, to go out and, and pick up a copy of Assassin's Creed uh, this week, I recommend I recommend the franchise uh, pretty highly. There are some stinkers. Certainly, you can skip Assassin's Creed Three. Assassin's Creed Syndicate isn't too good, um, but if you are into historical fiction, if you enjoy uh, if you enjoy getting lost in uh, in, in reasonably faithfully recreation, recreated historical settings, um, you should you should go and have a crack at them. The best one is without a doubt Assassin's Creed Four: Black Flag, set during the Age of Sail in the Caribbean. Uh, But there are some other cracking ones as well. You can explore the Italian Renaissance. Uh, You can explore ancient Greece, ancient Egypt. Um, And if you really want to punish yourself, I guess you can explore revolutionary america and play what is probably the worst game in the franchise although that's a different conversation for a different podcast anyway i'm going to close out the show of course now with all the boring housekeeping stuff halfhousehistory.net that's the website head there and you'll find everything you need to know about the show most importantly of course the contact form i've had so so many emails recently um i think we've had a huge influx of new listeners by the look of things on the back end here welcome Welcome, by all means, one and all. It's so good to have so many new listeners tuning in. I do hope you're enjoying uh, churning through the back catalogue as well as uh, some of the more recent editions as well. But uh, no, it, it is so it's so humbling. It's so flattering to have so many people coming and listening to my Tin Pot History podcast every week. And if you're an old listener that stuck around for so long as well, thanks for coming back for more each week uh but uh, yes half the contact form there in addition to links to the merch shop and of course the patreon patreon.com half hour if you want to support the show gain access to uh, behind the scenes content and ad-free listening uh i uh, strongly encourage you to uh, to support the show on patreon it is a huge spur to my flank uh without the support on patreon i uh, it's very likely that i wouldn't have the motivation and the momentum to keep this show going so uh the more supporters we have on Patreon, the longer this show is going to go. It's uh, it's uh, it, it always make it always means that every week I get up ready to go, making sure that there's going to be an episode out on on t- rough, roughly on time anyway. Uh, but yeah, look if you if you're interested in supporting the show and getting a bunch of uh, of cool stuff for for your trouble uh, in doing so, Patreon.com/slash Half History. It's great to have you along. Uh, tell your friends tell your enemies tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent i know that you're doing that because i am seeing those numbers tick up and up and up so thank you so very very much to all the people who are out there proselytizing and uh again maybe you're not playing assassin's Creed this week but maybe a mate of yours is and so uh in that case send this show over to uh, to them so they can uh, better understand what they're up to as they're uh, as they're taking the fight to the templars anyway that is that for this week. Going to leave you with a question posed by me. This is something that I've wondered um, about uh, about the Islamic faith because uh, I don't know too much about the, the central tenets of, of Islam, but I do understand that during Ramadan, um, Muslims can only eat after the sun has set. And there are parts of the world where, at certain times of the year, the sun doesn't set or indeed come up. So... What do Muslims do when they are in the Arctic or Antarctic circles during summer? Do they just starve?